Assalamualaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University of Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Dr. Henry Turner. Sound like the brother marched in the civil rights movement with that type of name. <laughs> We're going to be talking about his book, Change the Narrative. Some questions coming straight from the book. And uh, I'm going to ask him about how he turned that book into courses and such, you know, because you know how we are about this podcast. We're here to make the income, make the impact and the income. You know, I like my coin. So for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible, will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Turner? Well, thanks, Dr. Will, for having me. I really appreciate it. It is uh, good to, to be here with you. I'm Henry Turner. I'm a principal of uh, in Newton, Massachusetts, uh, or a large high school uh, I've been there for seven years. Uh, I've been principal for uh, 12 years. And, um, you know, my passion has really been around um, how to make sure that all students uh, feel like their, their school cares about them and loves them. And how do we make sure that we uh, build those connections with students so that they can uh, reach for the stars. And um, and so, yeah, so we've, so I've, I've been a teacher, I've been assistant principal and principal and um, and as you said, uh, started to do some writing in uh, in 2020 um, as a as a way to help other educators to think about how to help make connections, um, particularly with um, students of color, um, and how to um, create an anti-racist school that really is one that helps all students to to learn and and to feel to feel seen. All right, I live in Boston for three years. Never been to Newton Mass, but I read about it. I read Newton Mass got the wealthy people over there. Uh, it, it was interesting. <clears throat> this article I read, it was, and these teachers were talking about how you know they're rolling up uh, in their Civic and students rolling up in the Beamer. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I was like, okay, that's a school district right there. Uh, so I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are. What did you think you'd be doing when you were growing up? And how did you find yourself in K-12 education? Mm. Well, it's a good, that, that's a great question. It connects with what you were just saying. So I, um, so I grew up in uh, suburban, Mass- suburban Boston and in a uh, majority white community. I was one of the few. Um, we were one of the few black families that lived in, um, in, in, the, in the town. And... Um, you know, while there were a number of ways in which I felt connected and um, and supported, I also felt like, um, you know, there was a lot of misunderstanding about uh, who I was, right? And uh, you know, I dealt I dealt with racism. My 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 siblings dealt with dealt with uh, you know, with racism, overt racism, and um, so it was around tenth grade that I uh, was really inspired by a history teacher of mine. Which um, really motivated motivated me to become a history teacher. Um, and what's interesting about where uh, we live in uh, suburban Boston is that we have one of the first um, um, uh, desegregation integration uh, programs 
uh, called the MECO program, which uh, students from Boston uh, come to suburban schools. So students of color um, come to suburban schools. And so that was, you know, where I felt, you know, I, again, I, I felt connected in my community, but I, you know, I did feel connected to um, the students of color who were coming from, from Boston, but, um, but also felt differences because of where we, where we lived. And so I, um, after um, was a student at UMass, history major at UMass, knew I wanted to become a teacher um, and started teaching in very similar types of communities. And um, in communities that were MECO districts, you know, that had really made the commitment to uh, to integration. And what I love about the community that I'm in is that, you know, while certainly we have some of the richest people in the world living in our community, we also have some of the poorest people living in our community, right? And so we're really proud of our of our diversity and really proud that we are one of the first MECO communities in um, uh, to, to, to exist. And, um, you know, the school interest, it's just, a, you know, your typical large suburban high school with a lot of history, 18, um, I think 1840 was our first, or 1860 was our first year. And, um, and it was one that, you know, really committed to building technical skills for students, as well as students who are, who are going to college. And I would say that the history of the school is trying to figure out how to gain access and equity for um, all students who, um, for all students. And that obviously story has changed. And, you know, now we are 50% um, white. Um, and, you know, so we are, you know, for our part of uh, the suburban area, we are, you know, we're considered very, very diverse. And, you know, we are proud that we grapple with these issues, right? How do we make sure that, um, you know, whether it's economics or whether it's race or whether it's um, um, uh, LGBTQ related issues that we are making sure that students feel connected, that they feel seen, they feel that like their schools for them. Um, and, you know, that's why I feel like I have my dream job because that 10th grader, uh, you know, who's growing up, you know, I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, I, I couldn't use the same, wouldn't use, have used the same language when I was 15 years old, but this was the job that I wanted, one where you know, I felt like I was making a difference to make sure that kids felt like uh, school was for them. All right, all right. I haven't been to Boston since I left, so I left, what, 2003, so it's been a while, but it was interesting to me how the city felt different differently depending on where you are. So if you were in Roxbury, didn't feel like Dorchester. And that didn't feel uh, like Back Bay. Uh, you know, like all of these places had these different vibes. Now I lived in Lynn. I couldn't afford Back Bay. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my UMass Boston paycheck couldn't cover Back Bay. But uh, Lynn, again, felt like this own enclave. Like I didn't have to leave Lynn for a lot of stuff because I had everything like there. But of course, right. I went out into Boston to work. So it was a great city to live to to live and work and experience like me coming from the South. I do want to go back. I don't like the winter, though. The The winters were uh, like, oh, this is this is something different, you know, here, because when you're in the South, we don't have that type of weather. So once the flakes kind of start to fall, 
school, they shut, we shut down schools because we know that if that stuff sticks and there's ice, that's a no-no. But I lived in Boston and I just remember I'm just, I'm, I'm the first heavy snow came. I'm just looking, I'm just looking. Like when they gonna call school? When they gonna call school? It was like, it never happened. The, the that's what builds. That's what that's what builds our grit, you know. Uh, yeah, we are. I mean, we're for sure parochial. Uh, my wife, you know, my wife's from Pennsylvania, and sh- when she went to uh, college up here, she was surprised that everyone asked, like, "What town or city are you from?" Right? Like, the fact that Boston has so many different neighborhoods is exactly who we are. And there's there, you know, there's some there's a nice. Uh, uh, you know, part of that culture that, you know, people are proud of where they're from. And at the same time, there is divisiveness that occurs, right? And so I think that, um, you know, Boston has that history. And I also think that, you know, we're, I'm really proud that I, I, I am living here now where we're really grappling with it. I think that, you know, there are people who, like Ibram Kendi said, he moved to Boston because he feels like it's a community that's really willing to deal with its racial history, right? And I think that, you um, I think that is true. I think that's true of my school community. And this is, you know, really, really hard work. Um, I will say that the benefit of the snowflakes is that you get to snowboard. Um, so <laughs> you just have to you just have to adapt uh to 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 where you live though. Yeah, it was unimaginable for me, you know, again, coming from Mississippi, had a chance to go to the fleet center to check out some games. Never went uh, to see a baseball game, and I'm a Steelers fan. And I was there when the Patriots won that first Super Bowl, and I was like, I can't stand this city right now because everybody is talking all this stuff. And I was like, no parade, no nothing. It was just uh, – but it was a great experience for me. And I'm, here's the thing. You know, getting back here, I'm loving this conversation so far. We know that there's a lot of a lot of well, I don't want to say a lot of teachers, but we're on Twitter, right? So we see teachers coming on the feed. You know, they got a book out. You know, we see we go to these conferences. People got a book out. They're speaking and all of those things. Um, How did you discover that you actually had a book in you? Hmm. Well, you know, I I, I think that um, some of it has just been I've been. You know, I've been building this book uh, most of my educator life. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, I I would say that this was a bucket list topic was to, to, to write a book, but I had no idea what I wanted to write. And, um, you know, as I was uh, starting to gear up for it, what I was reflecting on was that there are so many stories that I would tell principals that I was mentoring uh, you know, graduate students and, and uh, grad course that I was teaching, stories about my experience that when they would come back as principals, assistant principals, they would say, do you remember that story where you talked about the principal who cut down the vines and the community never forgave them, right? Like they remembered those stories. And, um, and so, you know, I was really, I feel really, really blessed of the, the community that I work in, that um, we we were impacted by uh, racism my first year by an incident where students were driving around our school waving um, Confederate flag. And that was the second week of my job. And from then um, through today, we've been really working and grappling with 
you know, how to address hate, but also how to make sure how to raise students up. And so when, um, you know, as, as you said, you know, I've been on social media sharing and learning with educators. I've also been writing a lot, you know, writing a lot of blog posts and whatnot over the years. And um, when uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery were killed, you know, there were a lot of educators who were reaching out asking for what to what to do. And it was then when I realized that, you know, I have, there are so many requests that are going out that, um, you know, this is, the, this is the topic to write about because I know this topic. I've lived this topic. I didn't know how to tell it. And I just have to say that, you know, I reached out to Dave Burgess um, uh, and they, Dave and Shelly Burgess were absolutely amazing in helping me to get the story um, out. Um, for me to tell them, you know, I thought that I want, knew I wanted to write about was to help leaders to be able to address um, systemic racism and to, uh, and to you know, integrate DEI-related issues. And they spent two hours with me the first time I chatted with them um, to help me to think through, you know, how to organize this book. And so, you know, I think to your question, I always knew that I wanted to do this. I thought, you know, I realized the idea that I wanted to write about, but I think that what, you know, what I later learned from them is that when you have a passion when you have something that you love so much and you care so much about that you're going to talk about all the time, um, then you've got a book in you. And writing this thing was the easiest thing in the world. You know, it took, I, I would get up every morning, five o'clock in the morning and I would write and you know, it was during COVID, it was during, um, you know, racial strife, I and mean, it was a very stressful time, and this was therapeutic for me, and, um, you know, I felt, a, I found a lot of joy in that process. It was the editing process that was really hard, <laughs> right? That's when I realized this was work, uh, was through the editing process, but, um, yeah, I would say that, you know, it was, you know, finding what the story was, uh, realizing that I was already writing a book by telling these stories and um, then finding a mentor who really could help uh, me to be able to get the story out. And, you know, and then uh, uh, Lanny Rowell, who's a you know friend, friend of mine, um, also has written a, a couple of books. And she gave me this advice when I was really struggling with, um, you know, how overwhelming it was to write. And she said, had you thought about a, a co-author? You know, and again, just making this decision of like, yes, that's a great idea and not realizing all of the questions that I should have been asking myself. I, I was blessed to find, you know, the perfect co-author for this book. Uh, and Kathy Lopes, who is, um, you know, a person I work with, and uh, we have very similar um, vision for this book. And, um, you know, we were able to complement both my folk, my expertise in terms of leadership but her as a social worker who can, um, you know, who has a lot of training in terms of how to connect people, how to help people to grow and to learn and to invest in people, which, you know, certainly is a part of my job as a leader. But, you know, her expertise was just so invaluable in, um, you know, helping to make this book more human, um, I think, and relatable for, for, for people. Earlier, you mentioned about what happened with brother Floyd and, and things that were going on when you sat down 
to start writing this book? Did it did it ever hit you that some people may go, there they go again. There, there they go. I, oh, oh, that's all they want to do is talk about race. Mm. And you being an educator, did you have any hesitation that there could be blowback from it? Without a doubt. You know, I, th- I think that, um, you know, we we knew that um, you know there was going to there this was going to be um, met with resistance by a number of folks and in fact that's been the experience you know I think that's the experience of any any leader leading um, in this work is that you know there is there is you know really serious resistance you deal with you know I I'm aware that um, the common story is that any black principal who talks about race in their school tends to get fired. And so I was well aware of, you know, the consequences of, of this. Um, and, you know, we wrote in our introduction that this book is for people who accept that race and racism exists. They know that racism and racism exists. They want to do something about it. And that there are some folks who have a choice to choose that, to believe that it doesn't exist. Right. And that, you know, I would say that that's racist in and of itself, but, um, that this book is not for them yet. You know, it's when they see that, um, you know, how our bias in school can, you know, as educators can impact students of color, right? It's for the educator that sees that, like, I believe in all kids, but I also see that I need to do some learning to help me to really be able to engage, to be culturally responsive to students who may have had a different experience growing up than I did. That when I say, um, you know, when I say that I should, I want to, you know, I teach the way that I learned, that I actually am realizing that I'm telling a single story, not the story of all kids. Mm. When I say that um, I don't give the grades, kids earn them. I don't realize that I'm actually the one that created the, you know, the algorithm for what the grading structure is going to be, right? Participation, 60%, participation, 10%, right? I'm the one that's making that decision. And so I'm either choosing to own that I have responsibility as an adult working with kids, or I'm going to ignore it. And, you know, I I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of educators, there's a lot of parents, you know, that who you know, who are, you know, push, who push back against that notion. And, you know, we know that there are, you know, most educators see, they see the inequity that kids experience in schools. And so they want to do something about it. They don't, you know, and they may not necessarily know what to do. And that this is, this book is for them, right? Um, you, you cannot um, work in a school. It is hard to work in a school and to be blind to the inequity that we experience. It doesn't mean we're bad people. Right. It just means that this is, um, you know, this is the experience that our students have. Um, and we can ignore that we have a part of it or we can really think about how do we have a part in it. And the research shows that 50 percent of the things that can address racial disparities in schools are things that can be um, the things that we control as educators. Right. It's not um, it's not. We can't, we can always blame housing. We can blame poverty. We can blame all these things. 
but there's actually 50% of the actual issues that we can change are issues that we can change within our school. And this, that book is for them. And so I, I think about, you know, regardless of the blowback, I think about who is, you know, um, seeing that and really is committed to changing that narrative. All right. So the book is change the narrative. You've talked about your reasons for writing this book and those things, but for those who may not know what an anti-racism school looks like, what is it? So it's a school that recognizes that um, that racism exists. It's a part of our culture in the United States. Um, it's historically been a part of our culture and um, that it has it has changed over time. Um, and it, the result of it is that we see uh, systemic disparities where um, uh, in, in most schools and across our country that black and uh, brown students Hispanic students, Black students, Native American students, uh, typically are the ones most likely to underperform academically, most likely to be um, uh, disciplined, suspension, um, and um, and as well as other types of disparities. An anti-racist school is one that acknowledges that and works to address those disparities and, ha and um, has created an environment where um, educators are innovating and creating ideas, collaborating uh, to uh, develop uh, instructional strategies, assessment strategies, uh, classroom environment um, and culture strategies where um, that is committed to dismantling those uh, that type of systemic racism. And one that empowers the student voice where um, you know, what we know is that those students typically don't feel like um, school is for them, right? They feel like school was made um, for or developed, created for um, for white, wealthy uh, uh, students and um, has historically been created for them. And so an anti-racist school is one who breaks down um, those inequities, breaks down the policies um, and, and racist thinking uh, in order to create one where students feel connected, they feel seen, and therefore they're going to excel, right? Uh, just lastly say is I think there's um, a couple of different ways of, of seeing that type of racism and inequity. One is, you know, overt racism where you just are colorblind and um, you don't um, you don't want to think about race and you want to treat everyone equally and recognize that your bias, which you've learned, is going to treat kids differently. Another one is, you know, liberal bias where one where you uh, may see that racism exists, but you lower your expectations for um, black and brown students and therefore don't create an opportunity for them to excel and reach their potential. Um, and so you give them you know, easier assignments or you give them passes on um, you know, uh, that, that don't help them, but actually set them, set them back. I had a situation with a student when I was in Boston. He got in trouble because the teacher asked him, would he like to read paragraph three? He said no. And the teacher got upset and sent him to the office. And I had to, you know, tell, tell him that, listen, in our community, if a parent asks us, do you want to do something? That means you have a choice. But Sometimes their communication style is a little more passive. 
They're asking you, do you want to read paragraph three? But they really mean, Joseph, read paragraph three. But the teacher, I'm assuming in this situation, did not understand the cultural differences in communication which that, that student came from and just thought that he was just trying to be a little smart something, something in the class. How does a school, an educator, a school, a superintendent, begin the work of understanding themselves, right, as anti-racist leaders? And how do you communicate with teachers when at some point in level, this is a hearts and minds situation. This is a, do you have black friends situation where you really know people, you have experiences with people outside of work? Mm. So I, you know, I think you gave the answer in your question, which is that we need to um, we need to address the hearts and minds of of all educators, so that we actually are committed to really learning about who our students are, to a point that we are understanding not only them but the the culture that that is you know that they're experiencing at home and in their community, right? And so to your analogy of um, you know the the student who uh, the teacher who misunderstood the uh, situation and you know, uh, and how she spoke to a student, you know, it is also very likely that that teacher also has heard from other colleagues that like, well, those parents don't really care. So don't call them at home. They're not going to do anything about it. Right. And so you don't call at home. So you're, you're kicking a kid out of class and then there's no one that's providing any support for them. Right. Low expectations for these kids. They get disciplined um, and there's low expectations for them. You know, it, this is really, really hard work. Um, and we need to invest in kids that when, um, you know, when they are doing something that is uh, a violation of the school, of the class community, right? How are we helping them to learn? We're not police officers. We are, um, you know, we're educators. So how do we bring them into the community so that they are apologizing, so that they're, they're repairing with the, with the community? How are we, you know, when we say in the, you know, a similar type of situation where, um, we say, you know, do you want to do honors? And, this, and you know, this black student says, no, I don't want to do honors. And what he knows is that his friends are in lower level classes. And so he doesn't want to do honors with kids who don't look like him or, you know, that he doesn't connect with. He, And so we just say, all right, all right, you know, whatever you say, right? We don't talk to the parent. We don't, we, we don't also say, we don't say to the kid, no, you're doing honors, like I believe in you, you can do this. You're gonna, you're gonna be amazing, and we're gonna provide support for you. And we're gonna, you know, I understand the social aspect because that's what school is, right? Kids thrive because of what they see, what their friends are doing. So let's think about what are ways in which we can build an affinity group for you that supports you in that class, right? And um, and so it. So how do you, so to your question is, how do we as educators develop that sense of commitment to kids? Is that one, is that we need to really get to know who our students are. We need to believe who our students are and that they can do it. And, you know, the research is clear on advanced placement classes, honors classes, that uh, kids who have teachers who believe in them do better, right? It addresses stereotype threat, um, which many of our students of color are trying to fight against because there's this belief that they can't do it. And so therefore they're doing everything to prove against it. And it actually ends up hurting them. Um, and additionally, what are we doing to, to unpack our own bias, to learn about where, what am I doing that 
um, actually is is hurting students, right? And that requires vulnerability. And I, you know, in my school that we have, when we grapple with this, it's hard because it, in some ways it says like, I have to really unpack what I thought was good teaching, you know, and um, it takes reflection. It takes uh, a culture that is doing this with you. Um, but, you know, what I would say is that when we start um, committing to this work, what we end up seeing is that students excel better. They feel more connected. Um, you know, we end up creating a, a more positive uh, learning environment. Um, and we also start helping students develop these same skills. How are they standing up to a hate incident? How are they, um, you know, developing leadership skills or communication skills to take on a, a societal problem, right? Like when we start doing that, we actually are preparing students better for their um, for their future. Hmm. Given what's happening all around the country, um, just recently, after the ele the election that happened a couple of weeks ago, new school board came in at, at one area. They fired the black superintendent on the spot. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is going on? And and you got politicians out there. Who you know, we know they pushed the CRT, which isn't taught in K through twelve at all. Uh, you know, a lot of people are coming out there <clears throat> railing against culturally responsive teaching, or even just telling the truth of historical fact of this happened X, Y, and Z. Given the climate, what is it like to actually do the work that you're doing? with teachers, with students, and having to be true to yourself and your mission, but understanding that this could go horribly wrong? Well, I would say that, you know, those um, pushbacks existed 5, 10, 20 years ago. You know, the the thing that I think is different now is that a lot of schools, a lot of educators, you know, after in 2020 said, I've got to do something different. And they thought they were going to solve it in a year. You know, they thought they were going to solve it in, you know, a short period of time. And, and in my um, in my work with, with school districts, you know, there were a number that said, well, our school improvement plan is um, to address all inequities in our school this year. And I would say, well, how did that work out? And they said, well, we're exhausted and we don't feel like we made any progress, right? I mean, this is lifelong work. I mean, this has been racism. Race and racism have been a part of our society for 400 plus years now. And um, we have to, you know, if we're truly going to engage in it, we have to truly go through some, some really hard issues. And what I have found is that, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, all of the things that are going to be successful, but it really takes leaders to help think strategically, to be able to create the change. And that's that's the purpose of the book, right? There's a lot of books out there around diversity, equity, inclusion, about how to um, do your, you know, do your own equity work. But this book is about how do you, you know, strategically help um, a community to buy into. It. And what that means is that you as a leader have to build relationships with your educators to help them believe that, you know, you believe in them, right? And you want them to go through this hard work. Um, that you think about the professional development that is unique for folks, right? That you are you build an environment 
um, that is ready to talk about these issues. And I always say to, you know, you know, to schools when we talk about this is that we're, you should not be talking about the, ch- the difficult topics around racism on day one, right? You should be talking about race and racism all the time, but we can talk about like, what is your, you know, how did you grow up? Tell me about your story. Let me tell you about my story. Like that's a great way for us to build a bond, right? And then to start getting into heavier and heavier topics so that when, you know, a racist incident happens in our school or happens in society that we have built the skills and the trust to be able to have, you know, a heavier conversation. But that takes time, right? That t- I mean, I'm in year seven in my school and I can still list a number of things that we got, got to work on. And at the same time, you know, I, you know, we try to spend time celebrating the, the progress that we are, that we are making. Mm. So... <sighs> You talked, you spoke about the relationships. How are you actually building relationships with teachers, students, and, you know, families in the community? Uh, because you, you talk about, you say your book is about strategically, how do we do this? How do we make this happen? But how are you doing it, right? Because for those school districts who are saying, man, it's exhausting for us to do the work. But how are you doing it now? I, I'm not going to sit up and say it's easier for a black man to do it because when they see you, when a black parent sees you, there's probably a sigh of relief when they first see you. But we all know that all skin folk and kin folk. But how is it? How is that approach with you and making sure that you are building the type of relationships that are sustainable for you to make the transformation you want to make? So we use a, a four-part process, which is uh, to learn, reflect, act, and assess. And that is a structure for your own uh, internal process for, um, for, for going through this work of racial identity, and then also how you help your community to grow, right? Um, you know, as, as educators, I remember this is, this is a little off topic, but I remember um, one year we were doing professional development on this checking for understanding software. And um, we did a PD on it the next day. We saw kids just eyes glazed over exhaustion saying, what's going on? And they said, well, all of our teachers are asking us to do this checking for understanding software, right? Like as educators, we learn something, we want to do it tomorrow. And this is not this kind of work, right? We have to learn about it. We have to think about how do I implement this into my school that's going to be successful? We take that action and then we check, you know, and, and too often we we try something, we never check. Are we actually creating further inequity by doing this? Are we creating further division by doing, you know, whatever the strategy is? And so going through a very methodic process. Additionally, um, you know, we talk about our actions, which are, you know, how do we empower students for their voice to make sure that they feel like, you know, they have the right to um, speak up against injustices that they feel exist in their school? How do we make sure that um, students are able to feel like they're a part of the community, creating the culture of the community? Um, how do we help teachers to be colleagues that support, you know, colleagues of color, right? And then how do we take on policies, right? Whether it's grading, whether it is, um, you know, whether it is discipline policies, you know, whether it's hiring policies, what are we doing to uh, to create policies that are in line with our, va- you know, our values as an anti-racist community? And so 
you know, there are a, a lot of different areas and buckets that we can dive into, but we've got to do them well. And so that's why it takes a long time, right? We've got to go through this process of learn, reflect, act, assess, and go through with all of these different pockets and help our community to kind of to, to build and to grow. And what I find is that for educators, when they see the story that resonates with them, they buy in, right? And once they feel empowered to and tr and they trust an administrator that um, is going to allow them to innovate and to try new things, um, you know, I've seen um, I've seen educators, you know, really buy into universal design for learning because they see that they are able to help students to show their success in a different way, right? But if I have administrators said like, you're, we're gonna do UDL this, uh, this year as our professional development, you're gonna do it, right? If I do top down, it's not gonna get, they're not gonna buy into it, right? You have to help them to see how it's beneficial. And, and you know, I think my friend, um, Katie Novak does a really nice job of showing how UDL is connected to uh, racial equity work, right? So how do we help teachers to see that these strategies actually um, are going to help to narrow some of the gaps that they're that they are that they are worried about they want to take on but they don't necessarily know how to mm. and how do you do that without it becoming a caricature mm -hmm. right because we know some well-intentioned folks they dress up and and it's like there's no need for you to be putting on a headdress and some other stuff. Mm -hmm. Or they do things in a classroom where they feel like, um, oh, if we bring in music or we do this, we can sort of engage our students. And there's this one real famous, famous educator. And I'm not going to bring his name up. But when I saw, when I see videos of his, some of the students, and I'm like, what? Why do kids up here look like they're in the club? Like there's no tables and all kind of stuff. That doesn't sit right to me. Mm. And, uh, you know, but he has this reputation. People love the guy. But for me, I'm just looking at it going like, mm, okay, I, you know, okay. How, how is this work done to where people are making the connections, they're getting to know their students, they're 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 reaching out. They're going stepping outside of themselves and what they know. But again, making sure that humanity is there. There's some discernment that is there, and again, where they're not crossing that line, where this just doesn't feel right to some people. I, I love this question. I I would say that it's uh, it's about how we have honest conversations with folks. Because we're going to see performative work no matter what, but we're going to see regardless of whether we lean into this work, or we don't. Right. And so, um, you know, the one of the parts of the book that we've gotten really, really, you know, some of the most positive feedback on has been on um, our supervision evaluation chapter. Like, how do we as leaders um, give feedback to educators? Um, and, you know, sometimes it's around um, this performative work. And so, you know, the teacher who decides that, you know, I'm going to do a simulation around slavery and some students are going to play the slave and some students are going to play the master, right? Like we're creating an, a, a, a power dynamic among students, which is not okay. It is a traumatizing type of simulation. 
well, I can, you know, I'm walking in that class, I'm doing an observation, you know, I can make a choice to ignore the simulation and just talk about the history, right? Or I could say, whoa, this is great. The students are doing this like active and engaged activity, right? And totally ignore it. Or I can say, um, or I can, you know, yell and scream and say, this is racist, right? Or I can help the educator to realize the damage that's being done here, right? And, and, and I would say difficult conversations, you know, one is that when it deals with racism, you know, support victims 100%. And we are, we are committed to people in terms of their growth, right? And so, you know, there's a um, TED Talk that I love by um, this uh, hip-hop DJ, Jay Smooth, who says that talking about racism should be like um, uh, brushing our teeth, right? We brush our teeth to become clean people. We talk about race to become uh, anti-racist people, right? We don't ignore it. And so we need to talk to people as if we're saying, hey, you got something stuck in your teeth, right? We should do it in the same sort of vein. Like what you just did was inappropriate. What you did created, you know, traumatized students. And to be able to, you know, or what I noticed, you know, the strategy that we use in the book is, you know, I noticed that, you know, you had students playing slaves in your class. What's up with that? And to give them an opportunity to expl explain themselves and to say, you know, here are the problems with the situation. We can certainly talk about the problems of slavery, but they don't need to play it out. Right. Um, and the same goes for, you know, the teacher who believes that, you know, we should use the N word in Huckleberry Finn. Right. Like I noticed that I saw students using the N word in class. Like I'm going to talk about that. And so that can be for performative work. Uh, that really doesn't dive into the work or it can be for uh, racist situations as well. And so I think we need to really build a culture that we're going to be honest and open with each other. Um, and I do think that like we need to we need to recognize that this work is about raising expectations for students. It's not about lowering expectations for students. And so, um, you know, we are making sure that our students are learning at a high level. And what are we doing about that? And we need to really engage in those kind of conversations as well. Mm. That's all. That's all right. That's all right. So, going to your website, awesome. Seeing some wonderful things, and then that course jumped out at me mm. because what a lot of people don't know is a lot of people don't make money off the books. Not not life-changing, I'm paying off my mortgage type money. You know, that book is great. And it's a great conversation starter. It's a great way to propel you to doing more meaningful work. Uh, but I know a lot of people, they use that book for book studies, to create a coaching program, to become a keynote speaker. You created a course. What? was the inspiration for you taking that step to create a course based upon your book? Well, you know, I'd first off to say that, like, um, you know, I think that uh, the benefits come when you have, when you find your passion, right? You've got to find your passion and you've got to think about how to, you know, bring others on board. And so that's why, you know, I do what I do is that, you know, I want to, I want to make an impact and that's the, you know, that's the driver here. And so I have found that that wakes, you know, that I wake up, you know, 
when I go into my school. It's what drives me when I go and work with a school or speak with you. That's what drives me. And so you've got to find that energy, right? And then you've got to find what is the way to be able to get your story out there. Um, so the core, the the idea of the course is to help, you know, has a, has a clear academic, you know, instructional goal, which is to connect people with the book, right? Is to help people really see some of the ideas and strategies that we're using in the book uh, for people to really, um, to learn them, uh, to learn about those strategies through, uh, through a course, to be able to, you know, be able to purchase, um, you know, two and a half hours and to be able to, you know, go back and, and, and learn it. And also, um, you know, to hear some of the stories that I share in there. And, you know, what you get in my course are, you know, a lot of my keynotes and um, uh, presentations and workshops, right? And so I think you get a different perspective than you get from the book. You get really, you know, it really is supplemental um, to, the, to the book. Um, and I think the course, you know, helps people to, um, to really engage in a different way, right? There's uh, activity sheets, there's other ways in which you are, you're actually diving into it. You know, what I, um, you know, what, again, what drives me is to work with educators who are really excited about this. And, you know, I will put out anything out there to help those educators to feel like they have a pathway to be able to do it. You know, I, 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 um, you know, while I'm happy to tell sort of like the introductory stories, I really want to dive into the work with folks. And so I think that the, that the course helps to, you know, helps people to dive in uh, even more um, to be able to sort of engage and really reflect on uh, their way to, uh, to grow. And what I, you know, the response again from, you know, I've gotten, what's interesting about the course is I've gotten not only just educators, but camp directors, um, uh, executives and organizations uh, taking the course because they're seeing the leadership connection to it. And, um, you know, they're able to then like send, they're, they're sending me emails as they're taking the course and we're able to engage that way. And it's, you know, we're able to build, you know, a different kind of relationship, which I think is really exciting. All right. Now, before we go, what is your advice for those educators who want to write a book and what pitfalls should they avoid? So, my, you know, I would say my biggest advice is that um, you need to write every day. And, um, you know, the, the writer's block is not a thing. It doesn't it, writer's block exists because um, you're trying to write the perfect book. And so write every day and you're going to write a lot of you're going to write a lot of garbage, but then you're going to start to see the, the ideas start to formulate. And um, and also, you know, trust your trust yourself, right? Tell stories, tell your tell your experience. That's what people want to. That's what people want to read. In terms of pitfalls, um, you know, I think having, I think in hindsight, I wish I had um, started with uh, more structure of my of, of our chapters, because um, you know it took a couple months for us to come back to sort of like, Oh, we need to kind of put some chapters together or we, we don't need this, like to kind of organize ourselves a little bit more in the beginning. Um, and I also think that, um, you know, thinking about, you know, um, 
you know, what do you want people to walk away with with the book, right? Don't sort of just write for everyone, right? If you're if you're writing a mass audience book, you're gonna write too general a book, right? You want to be very specific about who this book is for. And then lastly, I would say um, don't write to sell. Write for your write, write for write, write your passion. Write your passion and people will buy into it. People will buy into what you're selling. I mean, the most creative ideas are, you know, people thought we're crazy. Um, so no, no, believe in your story, believe in your believe in your stories and uh, write about that. Don't write because you think people are gonna, you know, are gonna buy your book. Mm-hmm. That's gonna be the title of this podcast right there. Don't write the sale. I like that. I like that. Doc, thanks for coming on the show. It was fun. Appreciate oh, yeah. you. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode is going to be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. So I need you to subscribe and share with your network. And though I'm on all major podcast platforms, I'm trying to grow on Apple Podcasts. So, hey, in addition to subscribing, give me some stars and a review because I'm trying to be found and I'm trying to get Jay-Z on the show. And I want him to know that we're doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Henry Turner, for coming on and dropping so many gems and for you for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you. EDU, peace.